A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. This week, Sarah Leipziger on her new novel, Coming Up For Air. Born and raised in Canada, Sarah Leipziger lives in London with her three children and teaches creative writing to prisoners. Her short fiction has been shortlisted for the Asham Award, the Fish Prize and the Bridport Prize. And her first novel, the critically acclaimed The Mountain Can Wait, was published in 2015. And her second novel, Coming Up For Air, is what we're going to be talking about today. Sarah, welcome to Little Atoms. Thank you. Thanks for having me. First of all, tell me how you would describe the novel. So this is a this is a novel that follows three different characters who are in three are separated by geography and also by time Um, their stories are very closely linked to one another but they are completely unaware of each other they never meet each other which is one of the things that I really like about the the story about just how affected they are by one another but not being aware of that I suppose the main thread is told by a character whose name we never learn um, Long Canoe de la Seine and she's telling her story from beyond the grave. And she's kind of, she's trying to really set the record straight about who she is because people have been trying to speak for her and make up stories for her throughout time. And she's tired of that. She wants to get her own voice out. The other, one of the other strands of the story is told by a Norwegian toy maker and he is telling his story to his son. And the third part of the story is a Canadian young girl with cystic fibrosis and she grows up to become a writer. So each of them are storytellers in a slightly different way. The story of the um, the unknown woman, or at least mm-hmm. not the story of her, because you create the story of her hair, but the possibility that this woman existed. When did you first hear of her? I heard about her. So it's hard. It's, I always have a difficult time talking about this because I don't want to give away the ending of the book, but I did hear about Long Canoe de la Seine on a podcast that I've been listening to for over a decade, probably called Radio Lab. And there's a connection between the death mask of Long Canoe de la Seine, which is, she is a mysterious woman who was pulled out of the river, possibly around um, 1890 in Paris. And the story around her is that, you know, she was considered so beautiful by the pathologist at the morgue that he had a, he had a mask made of her face. There's a connection between that death mask, which became very well known in Europe, sort of in the mid-century. There's a connection between that and um, the toy maker, 
I gave him a the name Peter, but in real life he's called Asmund Lerdal. But I can't really divulge what that connection is because that gives away the game. <laughs> but I did hear about how these two stories were connected, which is which is real on a podcast. Yeah, I mean, I'm, normally, I, you know, I'll say, you know, we don't want to give too much away about the story. This is a really interesting case because there's lots mm. of like really great historical stuff that we could talk about. Yeah. <laughs> but we'll just have to ease our way along and see how comfortable we are talking about stuff as we get to it. I think the one thing that is quite fun to say as a teaser for people that are listening is that you do know this face. You don't realize it, but everybody knows this face. You, you're familiar with it. And when you find out how, that's what's really cool about it. So let's talk about your character of Long Canoe. Um, tell us who she is in your book. So in my book, she she's a young French woman from the provinces and she's brought up without a mother and kind of a, a nasty old aunt and a father who is not present because he's a, a baker on the Tour de France so he's he doesn't live at home with her and when she's a young teen I think she's she's about 17 or 18 she has an opportunity to go to Paris to, to become a lady's maid and she only spends a year in Paris before she kills herself which is not giving anything away because she kills herself on the first page. She jumps into the river and drowns herself on the first page of the book. But it's a year where, you know, she arrives not really knowing what to expect and happily carves a niche for herself, surprisingly carves a niche for herself. But then things go wrong for her and she doesn't see any other way out than into the river. So Madame de Bord, who is, tell us something about her, who is the woman that she goes to Paris to work mm-hmm. for as well. She is a very a damaged woman who has been really locked away in her flat for for some time. She doesn't trust anybody. She's been hurt by the world. She's lost her husband and she's also lost many babies in her life. And I think it's when she first meets Long Canoe, her her new lady's maid, she's not trusting of her either. But Long Canoe does begin to gain her trust and kind of a tender relationship forms between the two of them. And something that happens to Long Canoe while she's in Paris Again, I can't really say what it is because it it gives things away a little bit. But she, I suppose, before she kills herself, she leaves Madame de Borde a gift, which really rejuvenates her life. The book doesn't get into that. We don't even see any of that, except, I suppose, at the end in the epilogue, we see a result of that gift. But other than that, Madame de Borde, we don't really get to see what happens with her after Long Canoe goes. And you've described her as a lady's maid a couple of times hmm. so far in, in the interview. In in the book, the way that it's described is that she's going there to be a lady's companion. But of course, you know what the job really is, is fundamentally a maid. But tell us about what that job in, you know, turn of the century Paris, the job of a, of a lady's companion. And you're right, I said that wrong. Definitely ladies' companion. <laughs> she keeps Madame de Bord company, but she also does her shopping for her, her cooking for her. She isn't hired to do cleaning, but she, she does do that because the flat is quite dreary and disgusting and dusty. But she she is almost more like a guardian for Madame de Bord because, like I said, she's she's almost, um, I would say, agoraphobic. She doesn't want to leave the flat. She doesn't trust anyone. And so Long Canoe kind of becomes her her window to the outside. But really, yeah, someone to play cards with. It's hinted at a little bit that Madame de Bord has kind of a drinking problem. I don't know if you picked that up. So somebody to drink with as well, I think. Um, and again, we, we won't talk about the particular things that happen, the sort of travails that happen in her life while she's in Paris that ends up eventually with her suicide. But perhaps if, if we imagine, again, a, a real-life 
ladies make an orphan coming from her position into Paris in that time, you know, what sort of conditions would she find for a young woman? What sort of like, you know, life and prospects would she have had? Well, she... And I don't know, I mean, I'm not a huge expert on what her prospects would have been, but I think she realized, realizes particularly when she finds herself in the position that she's in that makes things very precarious for her, that her options are very are very few. She's an unmarried woman who gets into a situation. And she's also a woman who loves women. She, you know, <laughs> And so for her, the desire, the, the things that she really wants, the life that she really wants, she will never be able to have. The love that she really wants, she'll never be able to have. But in terms of, uh, you know, as a professional young woman, her prospects are pretty, pretty limited. And Madame de Borde is kind of her only option. The book is full of these sections of the book, uh, you know, full of very vivid descriptions of turn of the century Paris, it's people, the street people and performers and children. And tell us something about what research you did into the era. Well, that that's a really interesting question, actually, because it's, I was so aware of the fact, you know, you're writing about one of the most famous cities on the planet during one of its most well-known eras on the planet. And it was it was something that I didn't know a lot about. So I started off really, really broadly. I was going, you know, just to the British Library and reading about, well, first, I think, I think my, I, can't, I think my kind of first port of call was the morgue. Yeah, definitely the morgue and the, the making of death masks and the history of death masks. That's where I started out. And then, of course, when you start reading about Paris at this time, Every time you think, you know, you're, you've chosen one route to go down and then you, you just end up asking 200 more questions that send you down lots of other different roads. There's so many things to think about and to learn about. So I think what I started to focus in on was, like I said, the morgue and also the spectacle of Paris. Uh, for her, you know, she's not been to a big city before, so she's she's kind of blown away by all these things at first. And I think I, I started to do lots and lots of reading and then I started to get itchy feet. So I just went <laughs> And I think I spent about five days in the city and walked, you know, I would leave my little crappy little hotel at about probably eight or nine in the morning and not get back till seven or eight at night, exhausted feet. And I think it probably rained most of the time. And I didn't get on, you know, I never got on a bus or a train or any kind of transport, just walked and walked and walked, spent a lot of time walking down on the river and kind of loitering under bridges to see little details of what that was like, um, because, of course, that's the opening scene. And for me, that was a lot more informative than all the reading. I could I could have spent a decade reading about it. <laughs> But I got a lot more by being there. And, and you mentioned, to begin with, researching into into the morgue. And in, in the mm-hmm. book, the characters, um, the morgue is basically like open for visitors and people, you know, go yeah. along and take a picnic and ostensibly to identify bodies, but I guess really just for entertainment. Tell us about... Oh, yeah, I think that is, was... Is this something yeah. that happened? Uh, yes, yeah. It was... An, and I can't remember which um, guidebook, because I used, I used a couple of guidebooks as well as resources. But, you know, you could... Now, when she's... When she's there, I think the the Eiffel Tower was just being built in the, the period that I'm writing. But you would see in a, in a guidebook, you know, go see the Eiffel Tower and then go take in the morgue on the same day. It was just as just as popular as theater, but also, yeah, I think it was free, so people who couldn't afford theater could go to the morgue. So that was, I think, what seems quite cool about it as well. Is you would have all walks of life there, the very rich to the very poor, rubbing shoulders together, looking, yeah, just. And I I think even you know the act of being there to to identify people. I don't think people even pretended that that's what they were doing. I think there was queues of people across the bridge to get in every day. So it was a very popular thing to do. I want to move us on to 
to Peter, who's the, the second strand of the, the three sort of historical narratives in the book. Tell us something about your character, Peter, who he is. So the character of Peter, he is a toy manufacturer who becomes a designer with soft plastics. And he was one of the one of the people to kind of pioneer the technology of soft plastics and first started making cars and dolls. And his story is told uh, in a sort of, not sort of, it is a second person voice, but there is, there is a listener. He's talking to his son throughout the book and um, it's kind of feels, you know, like a, like a love letter to his son. He's explaining, he's explaining a few years of his life and he suffers a, a great loss and is in deep mourning, but then he's given an opportunity to work on, on a project that lifts him out of his, out of his grief and saves his life, really. And yeah, so here, treading carefully, let's perhaps, can we talk a little <laughs> bit about the real person or people that, um, that the character Peter is based on? Yes. <laughs> so he's based on an actual designer toy maker called Asmund Lerdal who's from Norway, who's still, the, the Lerdal Plastics, I think, or Lerdal Technologies is a company that still exists in Norway. And they do a lot of different um, manufacturing with plastic materials and soft plastic materials. But he did, he started out uh, as a toy maker. But what's quite interesting about him as well, there's not a lot that I could find out on him as a person. He was quite adventurous. He did like a big bike tour across some part of Asia when he was in his 20s, he seemed to have a really cool life. And he was involved in a project with two physicians in America with a, a huge medical project that has really changed the world in a very positive way and uh, helped to save millions of lives over the last, uh, what year are we? So 60 years, I suppose. So the real man that Peter is based on nearly suffers a terrible loss. Nearly suffers a terrible loss, which is beautifully thematically linked to the medical project of which he is a part. And that was something that I absolutely couldn't ignore as a novelist. <laughs> but I... I You've taken it further. I took it further because just in terms of, of plot for novel and for effect on character and raising the stakes for him, I had to take it a little bit further. Which is risky, too, because this is involving real people who will recognize mm -hmm. themselves <laughs> very much. So um, you've got to be pretty careful there. I mean, if you had any, I mean, is there to what extent does, does he still have family alive? I believe it's still a family run company. Um, his son is last time I checked, his son was still alive and well and is the CEO of the company or the CFO. I'm, I'm sorry, I'm never good with those terms. But um, yeah, I mean, it's still this is a this is a family that's still around. Yeah, definitely. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. 
So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Yeah, this is Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Sarah Leipziger and we're talking about her book, Coming Up for Air. And Sarah, let's move us on to the, the third strand of the book, which is split between Nora, a mother, and her daughter, Anouk. Tell us something about them. Um, okay, so this is uh, Anouk is a Canadian girl coming from northern Ontario, which is sort of close to where I'm from, born in... Uh, 80 something. Um, and she she's got cystic fibrosis, which is a disease that affects the lungs. And so when I like I'd said earlier, when I first conceived of this story, and it was it was really just the two the two strands, to me, just aesthetically, I felt like there needed to be a third something that comes from the outside of the whole story and, and ties it together. And I didn't know what this was at first, I was really lost about this. And I think it was when I started to learn about Oh, I want to say, I think it probably started with the river, with the Seine in Paris. And then when I was researching the Peter bits and researching drowning, I started to see themes coming up about, I guess, drowning, breathing, the cycle of life. And that's how a nook started to take shape. Somebody who is very much full of life. She starts off the story young, but who has a medical condition, which ties in again with Peter and, and Long Canoe. And I think I was must have been talking to a doctor friend and said, you know, tell me tell me about different conditions that affect breathing, that affect the lungs. So of course, cystic fibrosis was the first thing that she came up with. And her mother, I think the the character of her mother, I hadn't planned on. So I get like you say that it's kind of a two hander within this one strand. I hadn't really planned on doing that. And I think it was when I started doing research into cystic fibrosis that Nora started to come alive for me. And it was one of those things where this wonderful moments where the book starts to come alive and and demand things of you and ask you to do things and push against your plans and make a mess and make a hash of your plans and that's when Nora's voice started to come through I met some people who were living with the condition so I first spent some time with a woman who has cystic fibrosis which was amazing she was so generous with her time and and sharing things with me and then I spent another afternoon with a woman whose daughter has got cystic fibrosis and her daughter was quite young at the time so I didn't meet her. It wasn't it wasn't appropriate. I think she was only about eight or nine. But to get the insight of a mother having to live with this and deal with this, there was just so many things that this woman was saying to me that I felt I wanted to include in the story because 
again, one of the themes is, is cycle of life and passing down of stories and passing, passing down through generations and motherhood. So Nora just forced her way into the story. <laughs> it wasn't it wasn't in the plan at all. Carrying on from that sort of idea about water breathing cycle of life, I want to talk about sort of the use of, of water in the book because it's absolutely omnipresent. Obviously, there is the saying running through Paris, Peter lives and swims by the North Sea and a, and a lake features very strongly plot-wise in in Peter's story, a lake in the mountains, and and obviously there's the, the Ottawa River, and Anouk is you know variously described as like a sort of girl of the river, a lot mm-hmm. of the time. Tell me more about this sort of idea of water and and breathing that's threaded through the story. Water as giver and both giver and taker of life. So mm. Anouk, like you say, she's a girl of the river. She's somebody who is living with a condition that requires quite a strict medical regime, strict physical regime. And because she was born next to this river and has it's been a part of her life since she could crawl, it has given her so much vibrancy and so much life and so much ability to do, to kind of lead a very normal life until she gets quite sick in, in her later years. But for her, it's it's this giver of, of life. And, and of course, with Long Canoe, she can't swim and she goes, she turns to the water for her choice of death. And I suppose Peter's kind of in the middle of that. He's a swimmer. Mm. This is his meditation. This is where he finds comfort. But water is also the reason for his huge loss and his grief. But he and he almost, you know, he's trying to reconcile these these two things. He imagines what it would be like to drown. He imagines, you know, if you could make yourself do this thing that ties them together. And then, of course, breathing and breath runs through this whole story because of the thing that we can't talk about. <laughs> mm-hmm. And indeed, and and you know, there are plot-wise, there are things that link these three stories um, that we won't talk about. You know, that's that all ties together nicely at the end of the story. But I love the way that there are little thematic links and interesting links that that happen throughout the book. Like for instance, Peter and his children, they have this invented story about this little girl, which they call mm. Anne, which is a name that will become significant later in the story anyway, who lives on an island and the island mm. is shaped like a boat and there's a tree on it. And then we have uh, a girl called Anne Nook, who yeah. lives in a place where there's an island with a tree on it and everything. And I thought those little sort of touches were, were beautiful. Do you know, I'm doing a fist pump right now because whenever I think about these little tidbits that I put throughout the book. I know some of them might be picked up subconsciously by a reader or very consciously by a reader or not at all. And that's the one that I always think of. I really hope that people catch that because I don't think everybody does. So you've made me really happy right now that that you saw that. (laughs) It's also fascinating that the the person that they imagine in their stories is somebody with magical powers. And then the actual girl in real life is somebody that has this, she loves the river and she's in the river all the time, but her sort of <laughs> magical power is this terrible, debilitating illness. I want to talk about the um, one more thing and then and then I'll, I'll get you to, to read a bit, which is the um, the perspectives in the book. Because you, you've mentioned as you've been talking about the characters. So Long Canoe is basically a story told in the first person. Peter also, but he is, in fact, they're both, basically they are both addressing another person addressing somebody which I guess is you know is I mean, it's obvious from the start that Peter is talking to his son and mm-hmm. we find that in the book who Long Canoe you know, is is addressing and then Anouk and Nora's story is told in the third person and I want to talk about this choice not least because as you say we know 
from literally the first line, one of the people that's talking to somebody in the first person is dead. Yeah, I suppose. So, and that's a really, it's a really challenging question. I think partly it's just a, almost a, a language aesthetic thing to, to be able to have kind of quite different voices. So I, I wanted to mess around with point of view. I think Long Canoe, she's definitely, she's very aware that she's telling us a story. She set out to do this thing, to tell us this story. And I hope it comes across that she's really, she's quite risen above all the things that happened to her. She's not even that emotional about her own suicide. She's not particularly emotional about the things that have happened. And to me, I suppose that felt like a first person confident voice. With Peter, again, he's consciously addressing a another character, a son, a you, and the intimacy of second person to me is a really, really beautiful thing. I don't think I would attempt to write a whole book in second person in that way. And his bits, because his bits are the are the shortest, I thought I could get away with that. And then I guess with Nora and Anouk, we're more observing, we're observing what's happening to them. We're not as close to them. Anouk is a storyteller as well, but for most of the book, she's not, you know, she's not setting out to tell us anything. She's not really even aware particularly of, of what kind of a storyteller she wants to be. So it just felt to me a little bit more appropriate to have some distance from them. And also, yeah, just, just, it's a aesthetic thing. It's a language thing to have a little bit of difference between the voices and play around. So to finish up, can I get you to, to read us a bit? Yeah, sure. Okay. This is Long Canoe, The Unknown Woman, Paris, France, 1899. This is how I drowned. I stood beneath the arch of the Pont Alexander III on the left bank of the slick and meandering Seine. Moon silver, cold. I took off my coat and boots and folded my coat neatly and laid it over my boots, which I lined up side by side with the tips pointing down to the water. I stood quietly for a few minutes, watching the surface of the river form soft little peaks that folded into themselves again and again and again. I took a step closer to the water so I could peer down its throat. But this was the gut of night, and even with the moonlight, the water was an opaque, bottomless thing. Not for the first time, I climbed into the underbelly of the bridge and shuffled along the arch, hugging the pillars towards the middle where the river was deeper. It was the smell of rust and cold steel, and there was the smell of the river, and there was a chance that, in this moment, things could have gone differently. A small sign from the world to tell me it was rather I stayed than left. The nasal call of some rook, a shooting star, a whistling boatman, a change in the wind. Nothing happened. So I leaned forward, expelled my last breath, and let myself fall. The black water closed over my head like a toothless mouth. The cold was a shock, and so was the burden of my heavy clothes. I opened my eyes to oblivion. What I thought had been my last breath was not my last breath. I'd been wrong about that. For a few seconds, I was calm as music, but then my body pedaled and thrashed. It didn't want to drown. This wasn't a newfound desire, after all, to live. This was about air, oxygen, and my lack of it. My lungs, each of my muscles hung suspended, seized in pain. I kicked until my head broke the surface, and in that moment, I saw the bridge passing above me. I sucked a breath of sweet air before I went under again and wheeled my arms, looking for something solid to hold as I was carried downriver. My suffocating limbs became blocks of stone. Eventually, my body gave up fighting and began to sink, and beyond my control, my throat drew water. 
Water and river silt entered my trachea, my lungs. Something popped deep inside my ear. I vomited and, with a violent rush, more water, silt, and leaves filled the evacuated space inside me. At last, a tingling started in my fingertips. It was remote, pleasant. I opened my eyes, though they may have been open all along, and there was something pale and dead floating very close to my face, my hand. And then darkness surrounded me, like steam from a hot bath clouding a mirror, and a feeling grew too. It was as if I'd been handed the universe in a glass jar. All I had to do was open it. Just as my heart was pumping its last beats, I was hooked at the waistband by a pole and lifted onto the hard deck of a grain barge. And this is where I died. So I've been talking to Sarah Leipziger. We've been talking about her novel Coming Up for Air, which is out in the UK from Doubleday. Sarah, thank you so much for taking the time to share it with me. Oh, thanks so much for having me. This episode of Little Atoms was produced and presented by me, Neil Denny, edited by Sky Redman, and was first broadcast on Resonance 104.4 FM. Little Atoms is supported by 89up and hosted by Acast. If you enjoyed the show, please do subscribe, rate us on iTunes, and even tell a friend. Thanks for listening. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.